Hi, this is FAQ NYC, and I'm Alex Brooklyn. If you remember, in October, we invited a varied group of New Yorkers to submit eulogies for things lost, for New Yorks that might be dead, to them, whether it was a place, a person, a type of New York, the person they were in a type of New York long gone. One writer even wrote a eulogy for a New York in the future that would perish. That was Dan Jennis. And today, we would very much like to run them all for your listening pleasure. A lot of them are quite good, quite heartfelt, some very funny, and one even in song. So please enjoy this collection of eulogies for New York. This is Spencer Ackerman. I'm a native Brooklynite and a journalist. Siberia is gone. Gemspa is gone. The Carnegie Deli is gone. Jimmy Webb is gone. Susan Sontag is gone. ABC No Rio is in limbo. ASAP Yams is gone. Wetlands is gone. Jean-Michel Basquiat is gone. The Tunnel is gone. Mars Bar is gone. Lou Reed is gone. The Pyramid Club is gone. Michael Eilig is gone. A7 is gone. Club Rendezvous, where the NYPD's 70th precinct sexually tortured Abner Louima, is gone. Ramarley Graham, Sean Bell, Amadou Diallo, Eleanor Bumpers, Eric Garner, so many others, gone at the hands of the NYPD. John Varvados is desecrating the corpse of CBGB. The Limelight is gone. Kate's Joint is gone. MCA is gone. Kim Gordon went back to California. Biggie Smalls is gone. The New Feridian is one of countless diners that are gone. The Astor Place Barnes & Noble, where we used to mix cocktails in Sprite cans, is gone. And so is Coney Island High, the place where we'd go after we got drunk from the Sprite cans. Odessa is gone. Bauhaus is gone, and Eddie Wong moved to Taipei. Todd Youth is gone. Pop Smoke is gone. Big Pun and Big L are gone. Johnny Thunders is gone. The Village Voice is gone. New York Press is gone. Tony Bourdain is gone. 2,800 of us on 9-11, gone. 15,000 of us who lived in Little Pakistan fled because of the post-9-11 wave of police repression. 34,000 of us and counting from COVID-19, gone. An untold number of us from gentrification, gone. But New York City doesn't know how to do anything but survive. And at least Rudy Giuliani and Andrew Cuomo are forever disgraced. Eulogy for a Bookstore by Gracie Violecki I'm not sure how to write a eulogy for a place which only makes sense if you've visited. I guess I have to explain it in order to praise it, in order to mourn it. But even then, you might find it hard to believe.
Brazenhead Books was Michael Seidenberg's bookstore, four iterations, all with the same name. The first two were storefronts, one on Atlantic Ave, the other on the Upper East Side. The second two he ran out of his apartments. So imagine opening the door to a warren walk-up and finding every wall lined with books. Books like at the beginning of Beauty and the Beast, where Belle whizzes around on that ladder. Michael once said women would swoon when they walked in. It's true. Those shelves made me swoon. Brazenhead was a collection of used books, handpicked by Michael. But it was in his apartment, so really, he was inviting you over to browse and stay for as long as you wanted. That's not to say that the books weren't for sale. Of course they were. That was the whole point. Though people got confused, then had to interrupt Michael mid-2am story to transact before facing hard decisions about taxis versus subways at that witching hour. The thing about Brazenhead is it was almost free from commodification. It didn't feel right interrupting Michael to make him add prices, and of course you had to have cash, and of course he didn't have change. Besides the books, there were a dozen of people having brilliant conversations, and you ate and drank, shared your wine with others, or finished the bottle of whiskey without knowing where it came from. Michael kept a handle of famous grouse he sipped by the icy pint glass, and even if you brought him a special bottle, he'd put it on the bar with everything else. When you opened the doors to Brazenhead, it felt like stepping into a place that shouldn't have existed. But you were standing in it, so it did. Time evaporated there because it was easy to stay, because there was no reason to leave. So yes, we should all visit. The only thing is we can't. Because Michael passed away, and he was the bookstore. No one else could run it. And now the books are slowly dispersing to loving homes. All we can do is remember his spirit and welcome everyone into whatever space we have to share. Mr. Wonderful by Rory Celentano. No one was seen in the streets more than Gary. Every few weeks, someone would tell me, hey, I saw Gary in the street the other day. Or I went into Gary and Chelsea last week. Or I saw Gary online to use the bathroom, Washington Square Park Friday morning. He was either following everyone, living on the streets, or both. In a conversation, he once casually described such specific details of the street that I lived on it was legitimately unsettling. Gary was also probably drunk most of the time, although you'd almost never know it, and he usually hung out with people who were drunk none of the time. Of course, Gary got COVID last year too, tested positive for almost two months, and was in the hospital for most of that time. But Gary was like a rubber band. When we saw him shortly after, he didn't look too bad. Gary never looked too bad, and he usually looked pretty damn good. Gary loved Tom Waits, Nick Cave, and Wings of Desire. And Gary always wore black. Like Jerry Garcia, something was up if Gary was wearing another color, and it almost never happened. Most importantly, though, 
Gary was always down to hang out at Cafe Reggio. He just took a quick glance in his direction. He would shrug his shoulders. And that was that. Going to Reg was what we did. Gary also noticed everything. He knew who was slinging behind the espresso machine just by how our drinks looked and tasted when they arrived at our favorite table. Whenever it was Lipstick Lopez at the helm, Gary was the first to pick up on it and when he was at his most comfortable. Food and drink were Gary's domain. He was a master chef. He didn't need some part-time lackey fucking up his vanilla milkshakes or the minty mochas. That was the namesake of our early times together, the minty mocha era. It was succeeded thereafter by the soy cappuccino and oat milk latte epochs. Gary would have so many vanilla milkshakes in a week that Reggio would often run out of vanilla ice cream. And as much as this may have pissed Gary off, as with anything that irked him, he would just shake his head and smile like the Cheshire cat. Because Gary didn't waste precious time on trivial matters. He also didn't gossip, dwell on how things should have been, or talk shit about people. He left that all to us. And although we took shade and Freudian pleasure in listening to our seething character assassinations and trite assessments of others' personal inventory, whenever it crossed the line, Gary's laughter would cease, usually followed by his signature Irish goodbye. In this way, Gary was the arbiter of the appropriateness of our resentments. Gary was also something of a prude. He didn't like to hear the girls talk about sex, which, of course, just ratcheted up the TMI and propelled his uncharacteristic squirming to unbearable levels. Gary also left the cursing to us, unless he was telling a racially inappropriate joke, something he was wont to do. Gary was also quick to console someone down on their luck, regardless of their creed or color. Gary relished being an enigma. We also knew that Gary had let us get as close to him as anyone was ever going to get again. Gary's irresistible laughter essentially held our group together over the few years we spent as a collective. There was nothing that any of us enjoyed more. When he laughed, he would make a face just like a slithering snake, and the sound of his laughter just made everything feel complete. It put an exclamation point on what were the best of times. Someone would run through an interpretation of the often mimicked impressions of those in our orbit, pivoting from one to the other in rapid succession. Hey, you, what do you, you can't do that. What? Fuck. I don't know. Fucking don't Gary's giggling would reverberate throughout Reggio, infusing its concacophony with a cackling crescendo. His laughter was the soundtrack of this golden era and what I remember and miss the most about him. It was the panache on these simple and special times. Our little crew of misfit toys, retread adults finding happiness in one another's company and moving into our silver periods a little more comfortable and a little less complicated. All I wanted was to spend the rest of our lives enjoying these wonderful Reggio nights together. What Gary meant to these nights and what he meant to us cannot be explained nor overstated. But since this was not the way it was meant to be, 
All we are left to do is to cherish the echoes his laughter has left behind. A Remembrance of New York by Sky Cleary When French existential philosopher Simone de Beauvoir visited New York City for the first time, she wrote, New York belongs to the future. It will have to be discovered slowly. It will not let you devour it like a big piece of candy. There's something in the New York air that makes sleep useless. Perhaps it's because your heart beats more quickly here than anywhere else. New York City is kind of like a big piece of candy, sweet and full with the colour and vivacity of rainbow candy in spring and fall. It's sticky on those sweltering summer days when everyone is magnetised towards Central Park for a taste of the cool emerald umbrage. And it's extraordinary in the winter when we're all rugged up and trudging along the slushy sidewalks in our snow boots. Even when the black city dust perches on the crests of snowflakes and frozen, flattened rats. Even when settled in New York City, one lives in limbo, always on the cusp of new adventures. The city throws us into constant states of transcendence always moving amidst the shifting tectonic plates of energy, never truly at rest, forever surpassing and surprising. One wintry night, I see a group of sculptors carving a cluster of giant hearts out of snow on West 60th Street. Walking home after a summer gallery book launch, I hear my name. It's a friendly poet sitting on a Soho stoop drinking mezcal. We do shots, we laugh, we tell stories of beautiful nothingness and everythingness. We wrestle this city at the nexus of the universe to carve out spaces of our own, making the city ours. The city transforms us, and if we're lucky, it exalts us, as ephemeral as that might be. Our individual presences and absences in New York City are contingent, slipping through with ghostly beauty like those ice hearts. But the city is fulsome in and of itself. New York City is a plenitude, overflowing, blurring boundaries between the earth and the sky and the sea. And New York is a city of contradictions, existing in the dazzling tensions between heartbeats and searing sirens, between good and evil, between magnificence and tragedy between harshness and humanity, and between somnambulance and sprightliness. When I fall asleep at night, I can hear the city breathing, throbbing with underground rumblings and overground cacophonies, and hear my heart beats fast, furious, and fearless. Bushwick by Anthony Curry Bushwick a very old friend of mine. The city nights of urban decay, holy matrimony of chaos and taking what's yours. Something I always crave were those reckless nights, the fluorescence that make your eyes hurt, the piling heat wave of trash that makes the knife scars on your arms sore, lunatics belting their speeches of church burnings and exorcisms, Whispering nights next to that girl 
wish was yours. I've been stabbed here. I've been robbed here. I've impregnated most of this concrete sandcastle. I've sold everything under the sun. I drank wine and whiskey by the barrel. I've been the most glad and the most heartbroken, and I still want to come back. My family hustled here onto a boat right before the Second World War. So I guess it'll always feel like home. Just like that greasy cousin Joey that you don't really want to shake hands with because you know he didn't wash him, but you hug him anyway. Everyone wants that old nostalgic 70s New York, but it ain't so nostalgic when you get mugged. The Carter by John DeLise. The only time in my life anyone ever asked me for a date was on my way to Times Square. As I would stiff leg my way up 7th Avenue, the ladies would stand in the doorwells, calling out to me, blowing kisses, showing a little leg, and asking if I wanted to waste some time. I must have been beautiful back then. There was one woman that couldn't care if I lived or died. She was covered in silver metallic body paint. She spun blades with both hands above her head, and she breathed fire. She was the evening's DJ at the Hotel Carter. The Carter was seated like a monster mid-block on 43rd Street. Its marquee was small, dirty, cramped, and had no doorman. The neon sign facing the avenues had broken letters. And on its Times Square facing side was emblazoned in paint, rooms starting at $49 slash night. The Carter was not my favorite place in Times Square. If I needed to kill time, I could hang out at the Virgin Megastore. Or if I wanted a drink, I would hit the Howard Johnson's. Or the Tiki Room at the Milford Plaza. All of these places were safe and comfortable. The Hotel Carter was neither. It felt like the hotel from The Shining. It was filled with junkies, hookers, the bewildered, and the children of God. New Yorkers knew the place was filthy long before USA Today called it the dirtiest hotel in America in 2009, dropping to number four in TripAdvisor's survey in 2011. We didn't know it was filthy because it was a homeless hotel or because the homeless were taken out of it because it was dangerously unhygienic or because of the problems with sewage, rats, roaches. We didn't know it was scary because of the four murders and the four suicides that occurred there. You didn't need to know anything about the Hotel Carter's past or present to understand it. It was a dangerous, fucked-up place where dangerous, fucked-up people did dangerous, fucked-up things in a room that started at $49 slash night. No one would ever ask, I heard you were at the Hotel Carter last night. What were you doing there? The question is absurd. The mere idea of knowing what went on behind the closed doors of the Hotel Carter was enough to make your skin crawl. New Yorkers feel they have the right to everything, including degeneracy and decay. And that's why the Hotel Carter was a jewel. Not that you will go on a week-long amphetamine 
hooker binge, but it was nice to know where to go for it in case you needed to. Having the Hotel Carter in Times Square was like having a deli at the end of your block. Already by 1997, we knew that Times Square was changing. Disney was on 42nd Street, and the Carter had raised its price to $95 slash night. So the great Chichi Valenti held the launch of the short-lived literary magazine, Verbal Abuse, in the conference room at the Carter. That night, the DJ was covered in silver paint, breathed fire, spun knives over her head, and after, spun vinyl. There, a strange collection of people listened to a wonderful collection of stories. We contemplated how anything was possible in a place like this, for better or for worse. Eulogy for a City of Safety by Albert Fox Kahn A eulogy for a city of safety. Friends, we have gathered here today to remember that long-lost city of New York the one of safety and promise, the one where we understood the line between reality and nightmare. I remember walking through the towers as a child and seeing their shadow stretch out before me, the terrifying realization if one of them were to tip over, I could never run away. And my father laughed thought it was ludicrous to talk about the towers falling. We knew that was the sort of nightmare that children have, the sort of anxiety that permeates our minds at times, but we could also tell the difference between a nightmare and being wide awake. And on that day 20 years ago, when I saw the dust clouds billow out and couldn't begin to understand the images that were coming in from across the water standing on the Brooklyn Promenade, I I felt this sense of surreal detachment from what was real. Was this the reality of my city now? And there have been so many struggles, so many setbacks, so many horrors in the years since where Time and again, I, I look out and wonder if this is real. Because it's hard to know anymore what is the fear that's completely irrational. What are the things of childhood nightmares? And what are the threats that are real? Watching the city close down again more than it ever had in the aftermath of the attacks. Watching the devastation that COVID wrought, it it once again felt like the impossible demons were wide awake and walking the streets with us. That we couldn't know anymore where safety was, what the limits of the horrors could be. And as I walk the city now and I see the rebirth of this energy that permeates once again the stores and the concerts and all the different venues that make New York feel like itself, 
I look at it again with that uncertainty of childhood. Unsure which of these shadows will next turn real. Unable to tell where the safety ends and the nightmares begin. And of all the things that we've lost over these last 20 years, of all the things that I'm desperate to win back, it's that sense of certainty. The knowledge of what life might bring us and what things will never change. What earth is shaky and what things simply can't move. And to once again be able to walk the streets and see the shadows that come out and know that there's truly nothing to be scared of. New York Atlantis, a eulogy for a city drowned by Daniel Jennis. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here to say goodbye for there is much to part with, but also to remember Despite the survival of our alabaster towers in the face of a myriad threats, the sea has finally taken them, plunged them below the cold Atlantic. New York has passed through many dangers, scathed, oh how scathed, but after the levees burst and the cold front of Atlantic water overcame Far Rockaway and Coney Island, it was just a matter of time. How easily did we forget that Staten Island disappeared in the 90s? We just didn't pay enough attention to this great city, and now it is no longer New York, New York. So nice they named it twice. It is New York Atlantis, forever lost to the wine-dark sea. Let us remember some of the plagues that burst upon the once great city that foretold its doom. An American president, Gerald Ford, attempted to command its execution. Ford to New York, drop dead, was the 1975 order to stifle us through bankruptcy. And then the Bronx was burning, another attempt by mainlanders to destroy the city. Vote for Cuomo, not the homo, was how the city was slurred and Mayor Koch libeled by a father whose son was the last of our governors, now disgraced. Our city fought back against attacks as varied as broken windows policing, Donald Trump's development, the Five Family Commission, and 9-11. But did the jet planes take us down? Did Fat Tony Salerno bring down the Twin Towers and end our fine city? Did COVID kill us? Close, but no cigar. The wine-dark sea just rose and rose, and we ignored the signs. Reading about Katrina in our New York Times, now in a digital edition from Canada, but never seeing its aquatic encroachment on our burrows. When Staten Island went under, the ferries just kept moving from the tip of Manhattan so the tourists could see the harbor cheap. When the Statue of Liberty was up to her waist in ocean, we claimed it was art. The New Yorker said it was Cristo, added again, while others put forth the idea that this was an homage 
to Planet of the Apes. Losing Far Rockaway and Coney Island after hurricanes like Sandy and Ida was a blow, but all over the high ground of the aptly named Upper East and West Sides, we heard that the burrows would dry out. But did they? And when the roller coasters were condemned to the waves, what did we say but they were bridge and tunnel anyway? As Brooklyn sank and Queens went under, we said Manhattan had always been an island. And as the last refugees crossed the George Washington Bridge to New Jersey, we heard that Fort Lee was the sixth borough anyway. Today, a few billionaires still perch in the gentrified highlands of the Bronx, governing a swamp of despair and destruction. Did we learn anything from the drowning of New York? I don't think so. The signs were all there. The rainfall predictions and sea level rise spelled out for us. We knew it was coming. We knew the end was upon us. But as the deluge took out neighborhood after neighborhood, we just made excuses. Lower East Side lost its edge years ago. Williamsburg was too expensive. Midtown, schmidtown. And now we are left with only the work of Kevin Costner to watch and remember. His film foretold the damage that a fragile ecosystem and culture will sustain upon meeting another stronger force. Oh, how he danced with the wolves when he told us our future. Of course, the film I'm referring to is Waterworld. And let us remember how we once mocked its prophecies. Yes, we remember New York, but New York Atlantis is something we may never forget. Goodbye, Drowned City. David Gerard. The disappearance of children from the island of Manhattan. The disappearance of children from the island of Manhattan has led almost exclusively to salutary consequences. Those who have known only streets safe from strollers cannot fully appreciate the peace of Central Park now that it is only we adults who stroll. For decades, one might leave early from work, say around 2 p.m., for a doctor's appointment that might or might not be fictitious, but there was in either case an excuse for silence. One might find a seat on a mostly empty subway car and collapse into a barren bliss, only to see the dreaded private school uniforms filing in before the doors could close. Sometimes on the subway, I still hear those phantom shrieks. Alarmist in early invocations of children of men, that we would all be wandering de desolately from Inwood to the Battery like less handsome Clive Owens, have proven silly. It is not as though all children everywhere have disappeared. They are still permitted in Park Slope. They still roam the wilds of Westchester. Those who wish to carry pregnancies to term need only consult with one of the many real estate agents who have taken to lurking outside the offices of obstetricians. For Manhattan residents who wish to change the occasional diaper or shout from time to time 
at an adolescent niece through a locked door, the bridges still stand, and the tunnels still do whatever it is the tunnels do. Yes, the dinosaurs at the Museum of Natural History seem lonely without kids. Their bones seem to call for the youngest living flesh. But these same skeletons have endured far more catastrophic changes to their surroundings and have maintained their solidity. In place of children, we have dancing. Not the forced, isn't that sweet, jerky swaying that can be glimpsed on the social media feeds of your friends in Maplewood, but true dancing in the streets. Dancing is carnal, or it is not dancing. If I am too old to participate, I am not too old to be happy for those who are young enough, but not too young to pole dance on the angel atop the Bethesda fountain. And yet, do I miss children? Do I miss the times when I was the one who was pushing a heavily fortified stroller in the middle of the sidewalk, compelling approaching lovers to release each other's hands to make way for me and my progeny? Do I miss the climbing up and the sliding down? Do I miss the high-pitched voice asking for snacks? Do I miss even the sobbing visits in packed pediatric hospitals when we first started hearing terms like white blood cell count and feeling my daughter squeeze my hand in fear and confusion as I stared out the window at the East River? Do I sometimes wonder whether the disappearance of all children from Manhattan shortly after my child disappeared from Manhattan feels too coincidental? Do I sometimes wonder whether this childless Manhattan is merely a bereft father's delusion, whether even as I speak, my brain simply blocks out the child running past me after an older sibling, miserably yelling, give it back, give it back. Of course I don't. I do not miss any of those things about my child, not least because they are always present, torturing me. And though I still grieve, I'm not insane. Yes, my experience of fatherhood was particularly unhappy, but even the healthiest of children, especially them, leave you bereft, your life a husk, never to reclaim the youth you have given for theirs. Those who still wish to make that bargain have the entire world save now for the island at its center. Eulogy from an Out-of-Towner by Mimi Lipson I'm not from around here, and unlike most people, I didn't have an ambition to move to New York City when I was young. Maybe it was too on the nose for me, or maybe it seemed impossible or just like too much trouble. I moved here at age 50 because it was my cheapest option. That's a provocative statement that leads to a boring subject that has become the subject when people talk about New York. So I won't go into it, except to say that New York City has more housing workarounds for the intrepid, lucky, and income qualified than most U.S. cities. Partly because it needs workarounds and partly because that is still the kind of place it is. I live in New York like an outsider. 
I see how silly the high line is. I'm not blind. But to me, it's harmless. I can even enjoy it early in the morning or after the pedestrian traffic jam dies down. When people tell me New York is dead, I think of Russians in Brighton Beach, Trinidadians in Crown Heights, French poodles in the Upper East Side. I think of the national Ukrainian home and the ubiquity of $1 cans of seltzer. Because I don't have the block-by-block awareness of what is gone, my eyes land on what is still here. But I hear it too, the low-pitched, autonomic, melancholic hum of the missing city emanating from gut-renovated tenements, from wastelands and lacunae filled in by pencil skyscrapers and convention centers and intentional urban wildernesses. Because I've lived here all my life, many times over. Taxi driver, clute, after hours, the cool world, the world of Henry Orient, Gloria, Superfly, the French Connection, a thousand clowns, pull my daisy, downtown 81, Chelsea girls, the sweet smell of success, smithereens, brother from another planet, Saturday night fever, the little fugitive. I have my own history here, like everyone else everywhere. Eulogy for a Girl Named Manhattan by Alex Brooklyn Here lies the body of my Manhattan. Everybody thinks they knew her. Everybody thinks they had a really personal relationship with her. But nobody, not anybody, knew her like I knew her. She was the kind of girl, or woman I should say, who always had some magnificent sparkling bauble on her, bestowed no doubt by some guy in a suit. And yet, She hadn't been to the dentist in a decade. Her fronts were all bleached, but her molars were rotten. I knew about her rotten molars and how she carried mouthwash around because she was worried that her back teeth stank from decay, but they didn't, at least not to me. I gave her money when her rent was due once. I bought her coffee at her late-night shift as a co-check girl, and when she laughed with me, I knew it was different than the way she laughed with anyone else. We could giggle fit all night long. I knew about how guilty she felt walking by someone asking for change in the snow when she had a fur coat on. But what could she do? The coat was a gift, after all, from a guy she still owed who gave her a loan a few months back. She couldn't do anything about it. She was barely above water. But she still felt guilty. Maybe in a different life she would have been what she called one of the good guys, building decent shelters or working 20-hour days as a public defender, donning cheap suits and lugging a rolling suitcase full of files to and from the tombs, growing old, snarling at youthful assistant district attorneys with greased-back hair who looked more like gangsters than the so-called gangbangers they prosecuted. She thought about that stuff, you know. She thought about it all the time. And she had been smart enough to do it, too. But a lot passed her by because, if anything, she was a really good time, laughing loud and whirling dervishly through the streets. Every year that passed, she thought, maybe if I started that whole thing last year, I could have done it. But it's too late now, isn't it? So she kept on being a real good time. She introduced me to the magic of people watching, all those brightly colored cells rushing through the veins and arteries of all her burrows, dying and colliding, and in some cases multiplying way too fast. She never had health insurance because she never had the extra dough to spare. 
but she went to the nicest ER for every strep and shingle and claimed that she didn't have ID and gave out a fake name so they could never bill her for it. God only knows what would have happened if she ever had anything serious enough to get admitted for. She practiced real low-life hustles to get by, but always looked like a million dollars until she didn't. When the pandemic came, she kind of hit a bottom. I was already gone. I'd had a kid and had gone to stay with family in the mountains, but we kept in touch here and there. I was still one of the only people she could really talk to. I know I was. A real solid stop came to the party for a few months, though. She sucked in her gut just enough to shut the apartment door, and there she had to stay. Her fancier friends left to Long Island estates with space and air, and she found she hadn't been invited. She was empty except for the others left whirling on the streets who mostly needed serious help, hospitals, or homes. She hadn't bothered with the other friends for a while, the ones who had set up a real community for themselves and slowed down. So she didn't bother to reach out now, because why would they want her reaching out when she was alone with no party and nothing to bring? Wouldn't they see how selfish she was? I hadn't heard from her in a while, and I gotta admit I was a little worried. Did she sip too much laudanum before bed one night? <laughs> Did she become overwhelmed with a George Bailey sense of purposelessness and hurl herself off a bridge or into an oncoming F train? It could happen. It was happening a lot at that time. I was practically on my way when I got a bit of correspondence from her. She sounded good, real good. She said that all of a sudden the empty streets looked beautiful and as inspiring to her as they had years before when passionate opportunity overflowed in her and she was so hopeful. Maybe this was a fresh start, she said. She was going to get involved in things. Real, quote-unquote, things, exclamation point. I remember her excitedly going on about bringing back manufacturing and becoming part of the solution and building a social infrastructure and mutual aid. Did I know anything about mutual aid? and how there really was a better way to live. She was going to be one of the good guys now, and I was so happy for her. I really was. I believe she was going to do great things in this fresh start, this new life. But that's the last I really ever heard of her. Everyone said she was around and the same as ever, but all I saw was an imposter, and the new girl calling herself by the same name didn't seem to know mine. She certainly didn't seem to have all that new hope and passion for the brotherhood of man and whatnot. This new one, she was like the old one. This imposter had all the same rehearsed refrains, all the same charming quips, and all the same regrets. But she didn't know me. At least I don't think she did. And now I'm at her grave, the real one, the one I knew, who knew me, saying goodbye, trying to tell all you people a little bit about her, the real her, the her I knew better than anyone, anyone. I know that because I'm the only one here. Eulogy for Manhattan by Stephine Matteo Eulogy for Manhattan Dear Manhattan, you have been a bane and light of my life, and I love you, but let me tell you. As a child, you were famous in my neighborhood of Queens. I surmised that if I could get my mother to take me there, I would be as famous as you. Every year, we would visit you for my birthday. I remember wearing a pink shirt, a white jacket, and a skirt. I remember feeling like the chubby little pale Kate Moss, but man, do I remember walking down your streets, soaking up the waves of electricity pulsing beneath my feet. 
I ate chicken parm in Soho, the best around, and stared at the Casablanca poster as an old bartender with a funny nose told me to finish my food. You were my home away from home until you actually became my home. Exhilarating until I got hit with the reality of being impoverished in your womb. The old bartender at the Soho spot was actually a played out bookie in a beaten down tenement apartment and the chicken parm place was no more. Probably bought out by the Starbucks. The wool was completely pulled from my eyes. But we had a good time in youth. ABC No Rio on weekends, magical episodes of trotting in the city in my docks, then robbing the jewelry at the corporate stores. Sleeping in Central Park, protected by a Bob Marley blanket, studying fashion in its capital, fucking bankers and artists and teachers and scum. They won't win, we said. The old you would have liked me stealing from corporate enterprises, but you were young then. The new me certainly liked it. But as I grew older, I grew tired. You aren't the person I knew anymore. Or maybe I just met the real you. Lou Reed's walk on the wild side became walk on the mild side. You let the people with no heart live in your womb and you pushed me the fuck out. People who care more about money than your spirit. Then shoved my mother out too. You ate my mother whole and let her rot in the LES. And you took the fucking bookshop to be replaced by who knows. The old you would never... But hey, maybe you're not meant for us, though. And golly gee, good thing, because you're too great for anyone else either. Your death stings, but your peace makes up for it. You may have died, but your spirit is somewhere. I love you, and I miss you, and even if you spit me out, I respect you, because you know what? The ones who loved you most liked it rough, and the ones who loved you most could take your ravenous mouth, and maybe in the end, we're the ones who couldn't live for you anymore. Evan Maceros, A Remembrance. September From my first glimpse of her, in the near distance, a silhouette peeking over the ridge of rolling hills, a mirage in the middle space between attainable and the absurd, promising an as yet unimaginable test of savvy and will, I was hooked. Over the next few years we grew closer and closer still, perceived by my eager heart as a dance, circling each other in a seductive ritual of gentle touches and come-hither stairs, until the day when I rushed towards her, burying myself deep, deep beneath the wet rock and cold stone into waiting warmth. But this was no courtship, as naivete would have me believe, but instead a twisted magnetism that pulled and stretched my essence towards her across a tidal event horizon into where stars split, Light dims and everything disappears under the crushing weight of the darkness within. It was here, there, among electric pulses shooting through her veins, supercharging a romance of recklessness and loneliness, where she became my lover, my captor, my vampire friend, my pain, my muse. Alas, the blurring whirlwind of time breaks down all things eventually, love being no exception. If not for all the other suitors, the procession of endless entrances and exits yammering for attention, the rough concrete skin, the stifling heat of sweat and bitter cold breath, the incessant nagging to grind my fingers and feet to a pulp of blood and bone, I would have loved her forever. I'd like to think we simply grew apart bored of each other and looking past to something new, at least 
That's what I tell our friends, because the truth is likely much more cruel, and I haven't the heart left for that kind of devastation. Instead, I now raise a glass to the glory of what once was, careful to obscure the cracks and chips of history with jagged and still raw digits of a clenched fist. So it is with great remorse that I lie to rest this infernal affair, the prized one-night stand that lasted thirty years, a mirage that promised an oasis and delivered a seed. Edifice Complex by Annie Nocenti. I landed in the Big Bad Apple in 1980 with only a bicycle to my name and got mugged for it. Back then, muggers leapt out of the shadows and hot-branded the reckless. It was the price paid for living in the streets of possibility in a city abandoned by cops and open to creative lawlessness. I chased that bicycle thief down, leapt on him, fought hard for that bike. He kept onlookers at bay by pretending to be my husband. Back off. This is personal. This is my wife. In the end, I let him have it. The cheapest rooms for rent were in abandoned, half-abandoned warehouses. I bunked with other artists in the Coogan Building on 26th Street, built in 1878 as a men's racket club, and imagined the bygone smell of sweat and tennis balls. The building was torn down, and I found a squat in a vacant basement methadone clinic. My room still had the wire mesh glass sliding hospital windows from when junkies were served their tiny cup of relief. The building super let the streetwalkers hang in the lobby on bad weather nights, and sometimes they'd come to my underground room and show me how to put on a better face. One night in a bar called River Run, so named after the first and last word in James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, a bartender gave me a lead on a loft in Tribeca. These were the days when the derelict spice and coffee factories of old could be rented as is for cheap. It was a former cheese factory machine shop, floorboards gouged with oil-slicked holes. While I worked on making it habitable, I took a room in a converted meat house locker. My bedroom walls were thick layers of wood and metal, a sham Reikian orgone box. Long ago, it would have been filled with giant ice blocks and hanging cows. Behind the wall was a club called Area, and the owners gave me free access to the dance floor for putting up with the pounding disco. I'd wander over in my slippers and nightgowns in the hopes of starting a more comfortable fashion trend. The New York City I loved was the impromptu dance of street life, where stoop-sitting and kismet of passerbys spun into parties. I wanted to live in the whimsical eyes-on-the-street village community Jane Jacobs fought for, not the town eviscerated by the bully highways of Robert Moses. The late 80s, early 90s power brokers of Gotham competed to build the tallest towers, including the obnoxious gold tees of you-know-who. A prescient shrink might have diagnosed Manhattan with an edifice complex. The lofty monuments to egotism rose, which in turn cast long shadows on the rest of us. Their shadows stole our light, 
killed the flowers in our window boxes, kept us in our place. I live downtown in the shadow of the Twin Towers. The pre-internet GPS was a constellation of skylines. We all use those double monoliths as our compass south. The only romance they held for me was knowing aerialist Philippe Petit pulled off one of the greatest outlaw heists of all time by walking a wire between them. He stole an illegal promenade through the sky. Down below, my Tribeca turf was measured by the boats docked in the Hudson River on the abandoned Pier 25. Back then, boats could just pull up and drop anchor without causing protest. The rules of the sea, as my friend Papa Neutrino would say, docking his floating family band raft. The flying neutrinos would pull into any port, sing, collect tips, move on. It was a time when immigrants and political refugees could arrive in New York City, get a bunk on a boat, an off-the-books wage, and throw a bonfire party, gain a foothold in the big city. When the Twin Towers took twin hits and vanished, to me it seemed two teeth had been yanked from my own mouth. With their fall, fear arrived, along with its toxic buddies, xenophobia, and racism— a paranoid cocktail that smelled like end times for Tribeca. We cleaned the fallout dust from our homes, helped the firemen best we could, watched the stinking pit burn down, the fences go up, and the National Guard roll in. My 9-11 remains fixated on the carpenter who built a tower of plywood stretchers, despite knowing they were never going to be needed. That edifice to despair marked my doorstep for a year before someone finally toppled it. Loose Loads Gone by J.T. Price Hung by the neck, his still breathing throat severed by sword. This is how they treat heroes, those who dare to be great. Hip, hip, huzay, once they had cried. For William and Mary were newly king and queen across the Atlantic. And so followed Leisler to the helm of our great state. Self-declared as so many of us are. When has New York not been the premier venue for self-declaration? Come to the city and declare yourself something new. Leisler was among the first, and we recount here what reward he received for his efforts. It was a seizure of power he made in the new king and queen's names, in their names only. Not his own. Never his own. Of course, the bastards in Albany held out from recognizing his governance. Albany always has its own agenda. But they saw what happened in Schenectady, the burning, the raising. And so it was that fear of outsiders made them cleave to the nearest leader, the sneaking cowards then betray him at the first opportunity. Conspiracy makers and whisperers, everyone, plying the newly arrived governor sent by William and Mary with wine. And so the new governor signed Leisler's death warrant to be hanged by the neck and being alive, his body to be cut down to earth and his bowels taken out and his being alive burned before the faces of those gathered to see and to hear. Such fine embrace we give ourselves made. New York town shall never again be what it was, what it might have been.
since Leesler is gone. A Remembrance of Growing Up by Nancy Rommelman. Hey, so New York. Uh, when I was born, uh, my parents lived on the corner of Commerce and Barrow, or almost on the corner, right on the corner, which is really the most beautiful, magical corner of New York, or at least the West Village, was a place called the Blue Mill Restaurant. Uh, the Blue Mill was a kind of Portuguese steakhouse. My dad had worked there as a bartender, was working there as a bartender when I was born. Uh, my parents lived in a $54 a month railroad apartment next door. The story is uh, they didn't have money to get me out of the hospital uh, uh, from St. Vincent's and had to borrow it from the super uh, to get me home. But in any case, the Blue Mill was our family place. We ate there all the time. We knew the waiters and it was just this glorious old kind of New York bar institution, great bar. It had these like little lights over the, by the kitchen. So the waiters knew uh, who was coming when, when their order was ready. Uh, my dad used to serve Johnny Mathis there. I love the place. When I moved away to the West coast, I went back every single time I was in the city when Frank Sinatra died, my husband and I immediately went down to uh, the blue mill and, and, and had a drink. And it was like my place. Then, of course, the Blue Mill closed uh, and it became something else. And it was fine. It kind of looked the same. I came back another time. I was with my best friend who I grew up with. I said, let's go down to the Blue Mill and get a drink. And I walked in and they kind of gutted the place and rearranged everything. And I sat down by the front door where there was still an old like phone booth inside the restaurant and just wept. I it just everything gets paved under, but you don't realize it until it happens to you. So my mother said to me the other day, I heard the Blue Mill reopened. Um, I don't know. I'm going to go check it out for myself. Um, I will say my father died last year and I, I put most of his ashes someplace, but I have this little tiny, tiny uh, container left. And my plan is to go down to the corner of Commerce and Barrow where he grew up and, um, and spread his ashes down there where he played stickball and uh, right on the corner there where the Blue Mill was and in our hearts always is. So uh, thanks for doing this, Alex. Appreciate it. New York Remembered, by writer Lucy Sant. Oh, New York. You're not the New York I first saw on Halloween 1959. You're not the New York I visited as a child. You're not the New York that I had commuted to go to high school in from 1968 to 1971. You're not the New York I moved to to go to college in 1972. You're not the New York I experienced at the height of my youth from 1976 to 1982, approximately. You're not the New York in which I published my first book, which was devoted to you in 1991. You're not the New York that I left much against my will in the summer of 2000. You're not even the New York I lived in for a year as a fellowship recipient in 2012-2013. And you're barely the New York I knew even a couple of years ago. You know, I'm not going to say <laughs> don't ever change because that is your way. In the words of Elrem Kolhas, New York is a city that will be replaced by another city. Right now, as I speak, in late September 2021, 
New York seems like a rolling party. It's fantastic. It's also not going to last. It's going to become something else. I can't imagine what future New Yorks have in store. And it's not just one. It's a whole multitude of New Yorks that will come tumbling by. So I wish I had some of those New Yorks back. You know, at least I wish I had cheap rents and cheap restaurants and bookstores, places to hang out in. Those things aren't readily available now. Maybe they will be again. In any case, you have owned a significant part of my life, New York, and that's not going to be undone. A poem by Harry Siegel. New York is dead like yesterday's headlines, today's fish wrap, dead like Battleaxe, Bill, the oversized Irish terrier, with the proper fighting spirit and a hatred for the island's invaders who was dispatched to Rikers, 400 acres, made mostly the city's trash, barged in, heaped up, and then set ablaze, the island shining like a forest of Christmas trees at night, a whole hillside of trash lit up with little fires. The dog kept the rats in their place until they cornered, killed, and devoured the beast. Rikers Island rats hunt and kill a dog, blared the New York Times, adding... Obviously, pest is now a problem. Stop the presses. New York is as dead as who you were 20 years ago. Dead as you will be in perpetuity in another 20 or 20 after that. Dead as the corpses lining the belt parkway. The days are long, but the years are short, said someone who's dead now. And people who are not dead yet keep repeating it carrying the flame. Dead is the New Yorkers whose trash got dumped into the Atlantic until Jersey squealed. Waste not, want not, but life is waste and want and barges took the trash once washed away or washed up to line the Jersey shore to Rikers where Tarzan stripped to the waist, shoveled it to make way for the trash to come. Each day enough ashes, paper, discarded furniture and sweepings to cover 10 city blocks 12 feet deep. When the jail was young, the convicts tended a vegetable garden and cared for pigs. There, under guard, the convicts, not the pigs, until the long summer evenings when battle Axe Bill's successors, who the city's trash boss praised as the most gentle, friendly animals in the world who went about their business of killing a couple of hundred rats a day and who performed their duty efficiently, except for when, in the long summer evenings, they hear the call of the wild and go forth in packs to prey on innocent pigs. Without those dogs, the trash boss said, the rats would overrun the island and perhaps swim to the mainland and destroy the city. If not for the trash that fed the rats that made the city, bring the dogs that preyed on innocent pigs, most of Rikers wouldn't be there. New York is dead like a forest at Christmas, trees at night, a vamping affront to God, nature, nothing, same as it ever was, and is everywhere, so long as people keep saying, so long, and it is so long until it's done, long days and short years, gradually until it's suddenly and 
until it's suddenly life feeding on life in each pig, prisoner, boss, and the race until we ain't or it ain't. And what difference does it make then? Did it ever make? We are prisoners tending a futile garden, food for rats, electric lights flickering briefly in an uncanny valley of ash that one day, if some Moses wills it, may be remade as a park too late for us, as dead as New York City, to give a good God damn about it, or some punchline coda about what happens after someone cries out to stop the presses. My name is Jacob Siegel. It's an uncomfortable subject for me, the death of New York. I mean, I hear that, and all I can think is that if I'm talking about the death of New York, I'm really talking about giving up on some part of myself. You know, I loved New York for a long time. I mean, for the first 30 years of my life, I think maybe the last 10 years of those 30 years, I was holding on to something that I didn't really feel anymore. But I probably held on twice as tight because of that. But I dreamt about New York when I wasn't there. And I dreamt about it even when I was there. And I I felt it to be not only close to myself, but something that I needed to love me back. I wanted to be seen in New York. I wanted to be seen by New York. And I don't feel that way anymore. And I can only conclude that not feeling that is like a part of me died. I mean, as far as I can tell, the city lives on. So whatever part of it feels dead to me is a part of myself that's died. Maybe they died together. But in any event, I know that a part of me died. I remember once in a restaurant on, uh, I think it was between 2nd and 3rd Avenue, sitting with some friends of mine and talking about some other friends and saying that it was so tragic to see the vital spark go out of them, that they just looked defeated. Now, the people that I I was talking about, the ones who I was treating like they were the walking dead or, or, you know, one foot in the grave, they were like, 32 at the time they were hardly dead they were just starting their lives really just starting their lives as you know full human beings with with families at least and not just being adolescents anymore i mean that's one thing about new york you could be an adolescent until the time you were 30 but it looked to me like they were died lately like like some part of them had died i mean like they just weren't fighting so hard anymore, which of course they weren't. But I, I thought that fighting everything all the time was how you could tell that you were alive. So in any event, I was at this restaurant and I, I was lamenting that this tragic thing had overtaken them, that some, some essence in them had been smothered and I suspected that they had smothered it themselves because maybe it was just too painful to live with. And now, 10 years later, you know, I can only imagine that I would feel the same way about myself even though I'm very happy. 
happier than I was back then, certainly. I'm not in New York any longer either. And I think maybe that has something to do with the happiness, but also the happiness is what allowed me to leave New York. But also the the self-hatred was never New York's fault. So I don't want to say New York is dead, and I don't want to say that I had any part in killing it. But maybe, maybe some part of me died or, or turned into something else. I was reading uh, this essay by Milan Kundera recently, and he says that in writers, there's a transformation that occurs. A young writer is lyrical. They want to express their own soul to the world. And they don't turn into a real writer until they give up on that lyricism and embrace the epic, which is telling the story of the world in its detail. Artist and poet Sophie Zato. Be alive. Every pair of white shoes, every Starbucks or chain store or chain restaurant, every golden retriever cramped in a tiny apartment, and every nuclear couple, and every new baby, and every girl, and every boy that you avoided in high school can be met with kindness and a smile in Manhattan, just like everywhere else. Rest in peace, you gritty, dirty tramp. You may dream of a phoenix or a Lazarus or a spring, in its peaceful slumber, sure. And who knows, maybe someday. You've really got to get out of that line of thinking, though, and be the gritty, dirty tramp you wish to see in the world. Be a real, obnoxious, loud-mouthed bitch. Be terrible. Be the person no one wants to see. Make people say, Oh, my God, what is that? Be Creative Chaos Manifest, a real magnificent spectacle. Tear up politesse and expectations. Do what's right. Do it for the people. Do it for art's sake. Because what else have we if what we have is a quaint, quiet city resting in peace? What I mean to say is, it's possible in any place where people meet to be a group of tramps and to be proud of it. Beware the police. But if you want it, consider it your duty to be the new dogs that trot freely anyway. Read poetry to bums. Scavenge the alleyways for fun. Forget political correctness. Forget your kindness. Consider it a sort of ritual sacrifice. If you want it, you must do it because no one is going to pretend to like it, not if they had somebody and somewhere to be. But they really, really would like it. Really, in all honesty, convention and stagnation wants desperately to be freed. Through you. The people are waiting for you to free them. They want to make love again, even if it's only a vicarious masturbation. They want to be inspired and shocked and ignited. They want to have passionate fights, not on the internet, about some useless bullshit. They too want to cry from rooftops, from every fiber of their being, 
Every cell wants to be awakened and scream out in the name of love and in the name of rage, in the name of joy and life against the dying of the light, in a real physical exercise toward the sun or the moon or in the cold, wet rain or some timeless natural element that we all share, even if they looked out at the moon just knowing that you were out there howling to it. We all dream of this in the New York City slumber. We all want to be there. Don't let your energy fester into a bitter, muted rage or some robotic movement stuck in distress and pain. The braver ones, or the ones who must anyway, have to make the room for everyone else to be fully awake, alive, and free. Rise, all ye who give a damn, and don't worry about the elusive death of the city. Be alive and uniquely disgraceful in New York City. Be your worst self if you're yearning to be alive and breathe free. Jamaica by Isa Ibrahim Merrick Road and Linden Boulevard Modest homes on tree-lined streets Once a haven for the blacks who made it A Negro bourgeoisie Times have changed as things so often do If only the young ones knew Most remember of a wondrous place It started with a crack It's never coming back Burnt down to the ground The town of Jamaica Torn down to the ground, the 
town of Jamaica. The town of Jamaica. The town of Jamaica. FAQNYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver's Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research. Thank you so much to everyone who put their heart on their sleeve about good old New York City and wrote a eulogy for our special October series that ran a little bit into November. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Wear a mask and have a good week. <laughs>